we are about to chat about my favorite problem-solving court. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat. And I'm here with Jack. And today we are talking about baby court, also known as early childhood court. Jack, you have some experience with the baby court program. What do you want to share about that? So as I've shared in the past, Jack, Daddy, and I received our first foster placement when we were actually still in our foster parenting class. We had completed all the work that we needed to do to get our license, but we still had a couple of classes left. And these two babies needed to move out of their temporary placement. And the licensing team decided that we were a good fit for them. And obviously we were super excited that they asked us to take kiddos before we were even out of class. So these two kiddos, they came to our house and while we were still trying to get a grasp on living life with three kids in the house instead of one and how to be foster parent, I got this voicemail from someone saying that they were with the early childhood court program and that the kids that were placed with us were part of it and that they needed to set up some type of meeting with us called an icebreaker. And I had been through the training, but I had no idea what they were talking about. I thought maybe they were confused or called the wrong person. Nobody told us that these kids were in any type of program. You know, I also was very new to this whole situation and was like, okay, so let's set up this meeting. So at the icebreaker, we're sitting in a room with these people that we don't know. And then the parents came and, you know, they each came one by one. We had two meetings. This was like really intimidating for a brand new foster parent to be in the room with the parents. And I was so nervous about it. I think, especially when you're a new foster parent, you have these people's kids and you don't know them yet. I think everybody is probably nervous about it and wondering, what are they going to think of me? Are they going to be angry that I have their kids? Are they going to think I'm not good enough to be watching their kids for them? You know, you have all these insecurities, especially as a brand new foster parent. I look back and wish that every foster placement that I've had yeah. would have an icebreaker meeting because we all walked in there as strangers and it was a little uncomfortable. But afterwards, I felt so much more comfortable and it made it so much easier to co-parent and to communicate with the parents and to communicate with the team because we had gotten the weird awkwardness out of the way when we were all in the room and we were all awkward. So I really appreciate having that meeting, even though it was a little uncomfortable. And while we were in the meeting, 
there is this woman at one of the sides of the table. She just seemed so freaking nice. She had a smile on her face. She seemed to know what was going on when nobody else really did. But this person was super helpful, super sweet. At the end of the meeting, she like gave me her phone number and was like, listen, like, any questions you have, anything you need, let me know and we'll figure it out. Little did I know that many years later that I would consider her a good friend and that I would have learned so much from her because I don't know how I would have gotten through that case without her. She was like the glue in the middle, holding the whole team together, helping everybody. Like the mom needed help. She would call this woman. I needed help. I would call this woman. And she just was the bridge of communication between everybody that was involved in this case. Anyways, we are even more lucky because today this person, Andrea, has joined us for the podcast. One of the things that I love about Andrea being here is that when I remember that time in your life, I remember being just in awe of how much humility you had when you were dealing with these parents, when a lot of foster parents don't have that humility, you know, and Andrea has that same humility when she's dealing with parents and families. And I think we're so lucky to be dealing with two people that have that same kind of humility when they're dealing with families and children and the child welfare system, because that's the only way that we move forward when we see people for being individuals with value. Welcome, Andrea. We're so excited to have you here. You're here. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. So can I tell my version of that day? Yeah, sure. Of course. Okay. So icebreaker meetings, it was something that the department, the community-based care agency at the time in Florida, um, as we're privatized here, was supposed to hold for every child that was coming in with a um, licensed foster parent. Okay. So when I met Jack at the time, they were supposed to be doing these icebreaker meetings. And I had been working with the courts for about a year when we first encountered each other. And that was actually my first icebreaker meeting that ever existed. And I had had many cases before that. So they were not super consistent in having these meetings. And I was just excited that the department actually remembered to A, invite me then B, have one. It's so humbling to hear sort of your perspective because I've learned so much from you in my work with the courts even then and now. But when I came in, it was not me who organized the meeting. It was actually the department. Truth be told, I had no idea what was going on either because, you know, it's child welfare, right? I was just super excited, but you came in and you were super warm. And I know that the mom and the dad in the case were super nervous. And the part that stands out to me the most, I don't even think the facilitator said two words because we all just started talking on our own like we had known each other forever. But the moment that I knew that you were going to be my person in this work on the side of the foster parents was when you walked in knowing full well that we were going to have two separate meetings and you walked in with brand new recently printed out pictures of both children and you had a set ready for each parent. And I remember you just saying, look, I just want you to know that your babies are okay. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. I cannot wait to learn more about your family. And you did it with both parents equally. And so often we forget about our dads when we're thinking about dependency and child welfare cases. And the system tends to focus on moms and just to have him included. Um, he cried that day and it was so moving in that moment. Honestly, that is how every family parents should meet the folks that are caring for their children in a setting like that, really close to the time that the children are placed there. That 
that's what's appropriate. And so I just think we went from there, right? And history was made. Yeah, um, that's just so kind that you did that. Oh. That's like, I was really I'm nervous. Surprised. I know you did I that. And I remember for me, that really broke my heart when the dad started crying. It's so sweet. So it's so interesting to hear our varied experiences of that. When did you first learn about baby court? In the beginning part of my career, I worked in residential substance use treatment with teenagers. Did that for about seven years. I was pretty green and new and didn't know back then a lot about trauma and early childhood adversity issues that are, you know, stemming from disrupted attachments and things like that in early childhood. But what I was seeing in that environment was the result of those adverse experiences. And I could not wrap my brain around why these young teenagers were not getting better. And it was like their life was set in stone. It really bothered me. And so after I had my second child, the agency that I had worked for at the time decided to repurpose their state substance use treatment dollars into outreach and prevention. And they were creating this new team. It was kind of like a public health model. And they had asked me to go and do some care navigation with a local dependency court judge who I believe you've had on before. What I knew from her from having teenagers that were like with her was that she was tough. And I was told by my agency at the time that like, look, like she's not happy with us. Like she really wants, you know, some more expedited things in the courtroom. We want you to focus on this when you come back from leave. And I was like, all right, I'll go in there. But anything that I had known about child welfare at the time, like I hated it because they would dump off the kids in the residential and never come back for the teenagers. And I just felt terrible. And when I walked into this woman's courtroom, the first time I remember seeing stuffed animals and this is her traditional dependency docket like stuffed animals there was therapy dogs there was books there was kids there was food on the tables like it was not what I had made dependency court up to be in my head well it's also not what dependency court normally is and it certainly isn't that anymore after she's gone I know but it is like that across the country in several different courts because of the work that we were doing so Judge Tepper is like no other and I remember her telling me what kind of got her to shift her thinking and working families and she was on the bench in dependency for like 30 some years I could be wrong anyway was that she got sick of seeing the third and fourth generation of the same family in her courtroom for the same reasons over and over again. And she had learned a lot about ACEs and trauma. And she was working with the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. She was chosen to be a model court to make really some trauma responsive changes in the way that she practiced from the bench, the way the courtroom physical structure was, and the way that we worked in our community. So that was kind of how I initially got wrapped up with her. So I would say during her traditional dependency docket every Wednesday. And around that time, this was in about 2015. Zero to Three, a national organization that does all things infants, toddlers, and their families, including this Safe Babies Court Team approach. They had a grant and they were looking for implementation sites of this thing called Safe Babies Court, or what we call in Florida Early Childhood Court. And Judge Tepper at the time was doing a different version 
that is based off of the Miami child well-being model that started in Miami-Dade with a judge and an infant mental health therapist, a clinician. And it was a little bit different than the work that Florida ended up doing, but she was kind of following that model. But there was this opportunity to participate in a national evaluation and a grant and do this sort of different version of that with safe babies. So at the time she was doing this pilot, there was two courts in Florida. It was her and up in Escambia, I believe, that were piloting this baby court. Dr. Mimi Graham out of FSU was really, really pushing this at the time. And then Zero to Three comes in with this potential grant for the state of Florida to participate in. There was other sites across the country, but Florida had five and they were going to do this evaluation on the work for three years. Well, Judge Tepper, being who she is, was like, I want to do that. She needed to switch from this Miami child well-being model that kind of spurred out of the southern part of our state into this different version, basically of the same thing. That included this position. It's called a community coordinator. And it's a little bit less heavy on the clinical side. In order to be one of those sites, you needed a coordinator. Well, at the time, I was still terrified of Judge Tepper because I know that, (laughs) you know, she was a judge and I was just little old me. I was just sitting in her traditional dependency court and she used to talk to me from the bench and she said, hey, Andrea, did so-and-so and so-and-so who is like the top leadership of my agency who would never tell me these things tell you about what I want to do? And I thought she was talking about something else. So I just had learned with her just to nod my head yes and then figure <laughs> out whatever it was she was talking about later. So I was just like, oh yeah, you know, whatever. Just trying to like stop talking to me because I'm scared, right? And so I started emailing like the head of my company, like, oh my God, I'm in court. Judge Tepper's asking me about what is she talking about? I thought she was talking about something else. What is she talking about? And they sent me this job description from zero to three um, that said community coordinator. And like, I think maybe a logic model and was like, she's trying to get us to do this. She needs the position so that she can do this national grant. And when I read it, I was like, oh, my God, this is what I'm supposed to do. Because, you know, until then, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I was just, you know, bopping around. I knew I liked helping people. Didn't really want to do clinical work. But I knew that I wanted to make big change, right? Like, I wanted to change things. When I read it, I was like, this was written for me. I convinced my agency to lend my position to her and to allow me to become the community coordinator so that we could participate in this grant and implement this really neat approach. And so basically what it is, you'll hear terms. It's in Florida, we call it early childhood court. Nationally, it's they're referred to as infant toddler courts or an infant toddler court program or baby court. Ultimately, it is a problem solving court. It's for a specific population. So it's intended for children that are either entering or at risk of entering, they might have some kind of protective services going on, child welfare being removed from their homes and their parents. And so it's a different way of following that dependency case and the way that the system itself is working with that particular family. And it's rooted in what we know about early childhood development, brain science, relational needs for young children, because shocking, I know this is going to shock you, our system is not set up to meet those needs of very young children and they are the most vulnerable, the most maltreated portion of that population. And so 
what we've learned through the research is by shifting the way we as a system work with them a little bit produces really significant different outcomes. Some of them being that they tend to reunify if they do reunify faster. Children do not linger in care. And my favorite statistic is that they do not come back into the system. So nationally, the recidivism rate within 12 months of a child being reunified, going home, closing out, and then having to come back into care is 9.1%. But for safe babies courts or toddler court programs, early childhood court, whatever term you want to use, the rate is like 0.7. Oh it's just, it's insane. If you know numbers, it's really, really significant. That's bonkers. I know. And so for me, having worked with teenagers and just seeing the same people cycle through community-based mental health and substance use treatment over and over again and not actually get better. When I started really learning about early childhood development and infant mental health and all of these things while the brain is still developing that we can do to sort of offset some of that early adversity to repair that brain as it's developing, we can avoid a lot of those really poor life outcomes for young children as they get older and then become parents themselves. And not only that, parents that go through this type of court instead, even if they don't reunify with this current baby that they have in care, and we all know there's always another baby or two or three or four later on, typically when they're young parents, they don't come back into care with the next baby. So I've had parents that terminated their rights on their child. I'm not saying this is like a reunification program. We're not saying that. But because of the experience that they had through participating in an infant toddler court, they got the actual help they need. So A, they knew. So a lot of times they would relinquish because they understood where they were at and that it was not in the best interest of their child to reunify. They got what they needed to get better and then later on raise and keep subsequent children. And so for me, all the stuff that doesn't work to see something that did, I was like all in. The recidivism rate of kids coming back into care is one of the biggest problems. Working in dependency as we have, when you look at all the cases instead of one or two, what I don't see is a lot of change. I feel like a lot of the reunifications happen in general dependency court. It's a matter of, can I keep it together long enough and get done what I need to do to get my kids back? It's a Band-Aid. There's no intense trauma therapy. There's no infant, parent, mental health treatment. There's no working on that relationship with their child. It's much more punitive and task-based and it should be change-based. What I've seen in case after case is get these things done. Okay, here's your kid. See you later. And then the kid comes right back into care, sending these kids home after a couple of months because the parents completed their task plan, but nobody taking the time with the parents to teach them how to be parents. Right. And to get to the root of what the problem is. You're doing drugs. Is it because of trauma? Let's treat the trauma. You're doing drugs. Okay, we're going to punish you, punish you, punish you. Okay, here's the carrot. Here's the carrot. Okay, we'll let you do this. Okay, we'll let you do this. Here's your kid back. See you later. I've had a lot of parents who even right up at the end were like, I didn't do anything wrong to get my kid taken. This is bull. You're getting reunified and you still don't know why the child was removed and we're reunifying. That is not a case that's going to be long-term successful. Yeah. And that's why we're seeing these kids come back into care over and over again. The way the baby court 
approaches these dependency cases is a game changer. Every court should run like this. I just want you to think about a couple of things too. And I know we have a lot of foster parents listening and thank you for what you do. One of the main things that I just wish everybody kind of held in their mind is that no parent sets out to be a bad parent intentionally. The majority of the families that we are working with have faced early adversity themselves. Most of these parents were children of the system. We failed them. And now we are taking away their children. If you don't have a healthy upbringing or a sensitive and responsive caregiver, for the most part, a good enough caregiver, the expectation of you yourself being able to be that caregiver for somebody else is ridiculous. They haven't had that experience. And what we do in these types of situations is really a lot of modeling for parents and how to parent. The difference with very young children is they have all of the same needs, mental health. Yes, young children have mental health issues, but they do not have the ability to communicate that to the grownups around them. And so folks tend to sometimes think, oh, they're a baby, they won't remember, but they absolutely do remember. Their bodies remember. All of the things that we do impacts that child. So in this type of court, the baby is held at the center. Every time we're trying to do something, we ask ourselves, what are we asking this baby to do? Are we asking this baby to go without seeing their parent for weeks at a time and then reintroduce them? you know, months later, of course, that child's going to have a hard time. So everything that we do is based on the lens of the child and what that child needs developmentally and relationally. That makes a lot of sense. Our infant toddler court program is really sort of a cross-system collaborative approach into working with families. And so traditionally in child welfare, the attorneys have their piece of the pie, the ongoing caseworker has their piece of the pie. The investigators have their piece. Like everybody's kind of got their piece and it just sort of fits together. And we expect parents to sort of fit into or respond to the needs of the system itself. This approach kind of turns it upside down and works really hard. And it's taken a long time to shift the way that the system responds to the family's individual and unique needs. It really changes the way in which we work and approach families. Some of the major differences are that with the federal standard, I think, is that they have to come in to court like every, I think best practice is described as every three months. Some people, some states do every six months where they're not even being seen by the courts that often. In these types of settings, we strive to come in for monthly court hearings. And we also have a monthly multidisciplinary family team meeting that is led by a neutral third party. Those are two of the major differences. So it's the frequency at which we're coming together and having contact with the family. We are front loading services and supports. We don't use cookie cutter case plans. So it's based off of the assessments that are done at the very beginning of the case. And then following those recommendations, we pace out what families are asked to do. We're really intentional about that. There's a lot of outside of the box thinking. And then one of the other ones is that we know for very young children, having a four hour visit once a month is not helpful for very young children and babies. They need short, frequent contact with their family. And we really try to center that around what is happening for the child developmentally. Having upfront parenting time, we don't even call it visitation, we call it family time because that's what it is. Visitation is something that you do at a jail or at the hospital. In safe babies or early childhood court, it's parenting time. It's giving the parents the opportunity with support to practice what they're learning, to interact and bond with their child. And ultimately, it's not this, Jack had mentioned earlier, this like carrot or this stick 
sick, where you're punished, because ultimately taking away family contact is only hurting the baby, not the parents. It's not a reward or punishment. And so we really strive for the least restrictive, most frequent amount of time together as we can, because it is less stressful for the baby. So those are some of the main differences. The other piece of it, especially in Florida. So nationally, you don't have to have this component. It is best practice in Florida in order to be at early childhood court. They really want you utilizing a specific intervention, which is called child parent psychotherapy, which is a relationship-based intervention that is done with the parent and child. So yes, very young children do have mental health needs and they can start participating in that from birth. That is really, really helpful because it offers a narrative of what's happened to the baby and it sort of repairs that relationship and helps the parent be able to read and respond to the child's internal sense of safety and security. So for babies, they only exist in the context of a, of a caregiver. And so if caregiver is not okay, baby's not okay. And so we really, it's not about just having wires put away and outlet covers on the stuff. It's what is happening in the context of that relationship so the child develops appropriately. So those are some of the main differences. It is a very non-adversarial approach. So when I talked about having these multidisciplinary family team meetings every month, the goal is to bring in everybody that is working with that particular family around the table in the same space at the same time, sharing information and making decisions with the parent and whoever they deem to be supportive. We try to get everything figured out in the context of that space and then we go to court. And when we don't agree, because we don't always agree and that's okay, the judge then can make a decision. But that's the purpose. So parents know what to expect when they go into court. Um, They know what's going to be brought up. We talk about hard things open and honestly and with support. And then one of the other differences is that we're not just looking to put a band-aid over what's happened, but really getting to the root of some of that stuff, which can take years for families families. But also we think about the social determinants of health and the things that we know help keep people safe and healthy and connected. to So things like having financial security. So, you know, a parent might need to get a job as part of their case plan. So they get hired like for some seasonal work, but that's not long-term. So, you know, I would work really hard like that mom you mentioned, like I would take her to places where I knew that they would offer job training and a chance to kind of move up. And I remember, I think we went to a couple of hotels Tells. That was her first job yeah. she, because she's, I think she started like doing like the laundry and stuff, but then eventually she was able to kind of move up and do other things um, in there and have insurance and benefits so that she could care for her children's needs, really working with the community to help support the families so that they're not relying on systems to get the help that they need. I feel like what you're saying is that the main differences between ECC and regular dependency would be the frequent court hearings, frequent team meetings, and the approach to problem solving. Yes, it's those things. It's the addition of a community coordinator. That really changes the game. So the community coordinator is a neutral person in the case. They are not a provider. They do not have a side. They can never take a side. Their job is is their full-time job to do safe babies or early childhood court. They work in conjunction with the judge, the therapist, and child welfare, and their community. Ultimately, like I think you described it perfectly, it really is the glue that holds everything together. Um, And they bring in a lot of those pieces. I think some of the other differences is in the interventions that are offered to parents. Obviously, the way that we approach families, we everything is done based off of um, the latest research, what we know works. We're always looking for like the gold standard of interventions, building community capacity to help support families. And um, there's also a huge equity component 
The other piece of this with these types of approaches and some of the research that we have found, like across the country, we know that children of color are overrepresented in the child welfare system. So they are removed more frequently and they reunify less often. In the last evaluation that we did of all of these infant toddler courts, we found that children of color in safe babies fare equally to their white counterparts. With your traditional dependency cases, and please don't get me wrong, our child welfare system is overworked, overstressed, underpaid. God bless them. It is a terrible position to be in. This really helps support. It's not all on that caseworker all the time. It's really a team sort of holding and lifting this family up. Can you tell a story about how ECC affected a parent with a positive outcome? I was active in this work in Florida from 2015 until I moved to my current position in 2020. So for about five and a half years, I was the community coordinator. And in that time, since then and now, and I check, I have not had a child that had worked with us in our early childhood court ever come back into care. And to my knowledge, I have not had a parent, whether they reunified or they terminated with that child, come back with a second child. So those are two big things. The other piece of this is I had this mom, this poor thing. It was really bad. She had been on opioids since she was 12, probably. You know, a lot of early childhood trauma, trauma throughout her entire childhood. I sort of met her in a roundabout way and pulled her into early childhood court. I was doing this other intervention thing that I loved called Circle of Security with them. Anyways, I had her there. She'd had a daughter that was removed previously in another county and placed with a relative, right? And that case closed out and she never really got to see her daughter a whole bit. She's pregnant again, just has this baby. He's still in the hospital at the time that I meet her. And when she was pregnant and would get Medicaid, she was able to get on a medicated assisted treatment. So like Suboxone or Methadone or whatever, because she had a severe opioid addiction that unfortunately I believe was her parents that started her on it. The only way that she could get like Medicaid assisted treatment was through the Medicaid and because she was pregnant, she was able to get Medicaid. And so she really was like doing well at the time that I met her and she had her baby. He was still in the hospital. Obviously, you know, he was born substance exposed. CPS came in they told her they were going to remove. Well, they came from the hospital with this baby, took him without telling her. So she went to go visit and he was just gone. <gasps> no. Yes. I remember her saying, like, I knew this was coming. They just didn't tell me when I didn't get to say goodbye. Like he was just gone. I instantly was like, all right, I'm going to pull you into early childhood court. Like, let's figure out. So like, again, I didn't work for the courts. I didn't work for child welfare at the time. Like, remember, as the coordinator, I'm just this outside neutral entity. I'm not even a party to half of this stuff. So I was dependent on the relationships that I had from being, you know, the other work that I had been doing to figure out what was going on. And so we ended up getting her in. I remember her Medicaid was going to run out and her and I had a lot of conversations about like, when my Medicaid runs out, I'm going to use, I'm going to fall off the map. She knew what was going to happen. And I tried desperately to help get her into detox. We couldn't get her in. We couldn't get her there. Nobody could come pick her up. Like there was just nothing available to help this mom. Guess what? You know, she falls back into addiction. That little boy, we ended up terminating on him. And in the meantime, she got pregnant again. And we went through the same thing again. The second time, and I tried to get her in. I I remember it was like one of them was like around Christmas time. And I called the case manager and I was like, look, she's willing to go to detox right now. We have to get her in. We're going to lose her again. And the caseworker was like, oh, I can't. I'm delivering Christmas gifts. And I was just like, are you kidding me? So we couldn't get her in. But anyways, long story short, she ended up signing surrenders. She knew that was in the best interest of her child. And about, I think it was about a year or so ago, this mom out of the blue, and this was like, it had been maybe three or four years. 
since her case. She called me, never had a working phone. The only thing she ever kept with her was my phone number. And she still had it. Just said, Andrea, I want you to know that I'm okay. And I want you to know that you're the only that ever really cared about me. And I I just want you to know that I made it because I had told her, I'm like, you're going to die. I'm scared you're going to die. Like I was terrified because of the situation she was in. And I just always said, just call me. Like, I don't, you know, just, if you don't remember anything else, just keep my phone number somewhere where you can find it. And she found it. And, you know, it didn't really work out for her at the time with those children, but for her, it was that experience. And she just said, I felt like during that time, you're the only person that ever cared just about me. And that can change somebody's life. These folks are in the situation because we as a society fail them in the first place. We cannot expect them to be successful if we don't do whatever we can to help them be successful. And I am not talking about enabling. I am not talking about just giving them their kids back because they've had a hard life. I'm talking about if they're willing to walk the walk that we walk with them. And that means really early engagement. It means taking a strengths-based approach. It means having clear and transparent conversations. The other difference too in safe babies or early childhood courts is that the day that I meet you at that shelter hearing, I'm telling you about the second plan of adoption. There is always a concurrent goal list in a child welfare case. Nobody talks about it until the parent isn't doing what they need around the nine month mark. And they want to go ahead and change that goal because of those, the, you know, those regulations and those timelines that they hang it over their head and say, we're going to change your goal. That secondary goal was always listed. And I talked to them about it from the beginning. And I talked to them about how I want them involved in the planning for that second goal. So that if we do get to a place where we're not going to reunify, to me, the best outcome is that that baby still has contact with all of the people that love them, the family that they were placed in during their time in care, whether they continue to live with them and still see their first parent when it's safe or that they do reunify. And like that one first case that we started talking about today, that the resource family or the foster family continues get to have contact with those children months and years later on, because that's what's in the best interest of babies is that they continue to have all of the people that have loved and cared for them in their lives. Scaffolding is really effective. And Sometimes you're able to hold someone's hand and get them to where they need to be and reunify. And sometimes just being willing to do that is enough, you know, and maybe she wasn't able to reunify, but she remembered that, you know, and like that one particular client you had was she carried your number around and that obviously meant a ton to her. And she called you all those years later. And I think it meant more to me than it did her because like I was like, oh my God, you called me. But it's that. It's so impactful. I get that people do really terrible things sometimes to kids. I get that. But the majority of the time, we're just doing the best that we can with what we have. And if you offer families a safe place to land to try and heal, they're not going to trust you, right? So the biggest piece is just earning trust. And the one promise that I used to make myself is that I don't even like the system. It's hard. It's scary. It's traumatic. It's all of those things. If I can be at least one positive thing coming out of it, then let me be that. And I could go on for days of story. Like I had a mom that made brownies for us at her TBR trial. For everybody, the attorneys, the caseworker, everybody that was testifying against her to make us feel better. Because that was the relationship that we had with her. It's just a different way of doing this really, really hard work. It's rooted in really doing what we know works best for very young children. I mean, we can change the way the baby's brain develops, for God's sakes, by doing this. Like I think it's like 83% of the of the incarcerated population are former foster youth. That's yeah, a problem. Yeah. 
we have so many opportunities when we engage and interact with families. Our system is so chaotic, is so dysfunctional in so many ways. And there's a lot of good people in it trying to strive to do better. And change takes systemic change takes a long time. But we don't practice what we preach with families. We expect them to have very calm, sensitive, responsive, loving, caring environments to raise their children in. But we do not model that for them. We are hypocritical in what we're asking them to do. The effort of infant toddler courts and the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people that are involved in those work really, really hard to emulate. So to be the example, parent the parent the way you want the parent to parent that baby. Because you need to have the assumption that they have not yet had that experience, unfortunately, in their lives. And for us to expect them to be able to replicate something they've never experienced is ridiculous and idiotic. If their experience with this team of helpers is is good, they're likely to then emulate that with their own children. We offer them that experience. Jack does a really good job in co-parenting with families. And that's why I call you the reunification queen, because it makes a huge difference. And oftentimes the foster family is the first experience of healthy. The ECC programs are limited, but we can obviously see that the ECC model creates such better outcomes. I try and take an ECC approach to every case because obviously that's how I learned how to be a foster parent. I don't have a community coordinator to work with. I don't have the people on the team who are familiar at all with ECC, but... I try and do my part in every case that I have because I feel like the more I do that, the better outcomes we can have, right? So what do you recommend that foster parents can do to kind of replicate that ECC model in the cases that we do have? Ultimately, find out if your community or jurisdiction does have one, first of all, because if you do, you need to find out who your community coordinator is. If you don't, you can advocate for it. Zero to three is where the National Resource Center is. And it's all spelled out Z-E-R-O-T-O-T-H-R-E-E. And it's the National Infant Toddler Court Program where you can learn more about where these sites are and what's happening to help support it. But there's also a ton of resources there that have everything to do with the entire system of care, whether it be child development, brain science, and then this specific work that's being done with the early childhood courts. So you can find more there. But ultimately, my answer to your question is co-parenting. The way that we approach families and understanding no parent sets out to be a bad parent. Some of them have made really bad choices and have put their children in really dangerous situations. But the vast majority of them are in the situation they're in because they haven't been given anything else or haven't had these healthy experiences themselves. And they need help. Understanding that it's going to be a lot easier for that child, the more often they're able to see their parents. So advocating for that when it is safe to do so, sharing your experiences, your parenting expertise that you were fortunate enough to grow up with, with parents if they're interested in looking to you for that. Just being an extra support for the family can change drastically for everybody involved. You told us about the first placement you had that was an ECC placement. Can you tell us how that ended? Sure. Uh, My best cases are the ones that reunify. And I had heard recently about a foster parent who was really proud about the limited number of reunifications they had. And the thing that makes me the proudest is the amount of reunifications I have, and especially when they're successful. And so that first case was a reunification, not just a reunification, but the parents stayed in contact with me 
for a long time after and still I sometimes see them uh, dropping kids off at school and we say hi to each other. And for a long time, they used me as a resource. Like the kids would come over if she had something that she had to do and she needed a babysitter. I would always offer to do that. And sometimes we would go to doctor's appointments together, even after reunification. And sometimes she would call me and ask questions. Kids are older and it's a lot of time has passed. We're boiled down to like Facebook buddies now. But yeah, it was a reunification and we were able to stay in contact after the fact. Definitely really proud of being able to be part of something like that. All of my cases that I worked with ECC, it was a privilege to be able to be part of something so special. Anytime legislation goes up, it has any type of influence on the early childhood court program. I am like super eager to send emails and letters to representatives to try and help push it forward. Even got some really great responses in the past. I think that there's legislation being introduced federally that will support ECC. What do you think that we as citizens and as foster parents and social workers and just regular people to support legislation like this? Vote in local elections. Talk to your elected officials. This approach is a bipartisan approach. So it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you find yourself on. There is something for everybody in this type of work. Ultimately, children spend less time in care, which is a cost savings, and they heal. And if we invest early before this damage sometimes is done, we all benefit from it. Our communities are safer, less people have substance use disorders or mental health issues or poor health outcomes as a result of these adverse early childhood experiences. Early investment makes a huge difference. So find out, talk to your elected officials about this kind of stuff. Ask them what they're doing to support families with young children. Everybody's future depends on their well-being. Children zero to three are the largest portion of children in care. There's a reason for that. And so we all have the power to do that. And if you don't have an early childhood court or infant toddler court program in your local community, reach out. We'll help you get one started. Talk to your local dependency court judges. Maybe they don't know about it. Our entire system is strained and there aren't enough resources. The community that I worked in, it wasn't like we had a lot of resources available. We didn't have things floating away for families like you do in larger cities. We didn't have anything. What we did have was a willingness to change things and a willingness to partner and work together even when we didn't agree to make things better. And the families in our community have benefited from that. There's a lot that you can do, but ultimately my answer is always going to be vote. Vote for people that are willing to invest in this kind of stuff so that we don't have to do it on the back end because we're going to pay for it one way or another. Doing it this way saves a whole lot of heartache for everybody. Especially with 84% of our jails being filled with former foster youth. There's a reason for Um, that. Between Funding that between funding all of the drug programs that have to run to help kids who were not helped on the front end. It's not just helping kids, it's cost saving. It doesn't have to be this way. We can change that. And we are. We are changing that a little bit at a time. You know, I hear so much the system is broken. You know, yeah, there's pieces that are, but this to me is exciting. And to see not only in the families, but the folks that work you know, that set their career to help people. This is something that actually helps. I've been in a helping profession for a long time. You just get tired of doing the same thing over and over and not being able to make a difference. But at this age, we are able to make a difference. We have the ability to do that.
when you have something that you put in place that actually makes a difference, it gives you hope that things can be better than they are. So for families who have been exposed to the system as children and were oftentimes abused in that very system that their children are now in, it's so great when they have a completely different experience with their own children and something like this, where they're like, there are actually people out there that want to help and that do care. They're likely to ask for help again when they need it in the future if they receive the right kind of help. And that's what we're about, doing what works for families and ultimately lifting up and letting them have a say in the help that they receive. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.